Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. I'm continuing my theme that I started last month of the Lynchverse, talking about David Lynch-directed movies and their connections to his show that he co-created, Twin Peaks. Uh, normally for this uh, podcast, I'm covering films that aren't explicitly connected to Twin Peaks, so this is kind of a new direction, even though some of these episodes were recorded a while ago for patrons but talking about the connections between Lynch's different works. And uh, at the end of this episode, I'm going to include a sort of a bonus section, something else I recorded at a, at a different time about uh, Eraserhead's connection to a particular uh, unusual Twin Peaks subplot you might not think to connect it to. So that'll be at the end of this. As always, if you have any feedback, thoughts on this or any other episode please write in. I'll be happy to share that on the show. Before we jump right in, just an update on my other podcast work recently and some other Twin Peaks work as well. On my Lost in the Movies podcast, I covered the film Heart of a Dog by Laurie Anderson. And on Lost in the Movies uh, Patreon podcast, I'm still working on that episode. Uh, the, the, the January one has been delayed, so expect something for that soon. I also spoke to John Bernardi, the host of the Blue Rose Task Force podcast uh, for my episode of Twin Peaks Conversations. We had a great conversation, not just about his podcast, this essay about uh, diverging uh, timelines, I guess you could call them in Twin Peaks. He has his own way of describing it, but also uh, in the Patreon part, because it's also on Patreon for the $5 a month tier, the back part of this podcast is, we also talked about like the history of Twin Peaks fandom and his own involvement with it, kind of going through the years in a really interesting chronological way that I thought was a lot of fun to do. So you can check out both parts of that conversation on uh, the links below. And then also I have been putting out written character series entries, published a bonus entry on Johnny Horn, who doesn't have 10 minutes of screen time, but uh, I had covered in the past, so I updated that entry. And then I also put up entries on Stephen Burnett, Phil Bisbee, Sylvia Horn, uh, links to older entries on Mountie King, Judge Sternwood, Emery Battis, uh, entries on uh, Philip Jeffries, Gersten Hayward, uh, Beverly Page, Daria, the detect the Fusco detectives, uh, the Roadhouse patrons as a group, and Becky Burnett. So check all that out, and uh, now on with Eraserhead. I've already described the plot, if that's the right word for it, of Eraserhead in a previous review on this podcast. I've already done a podcast comparing it to another Lynch work, but not talking too much about its relationship to Twin Peaks. But I don't need to get too much into the story because of that, you, you know, the, the events that happen on their own. We can just dive right into the meat of how this relates to Twin Peaks. And this is a topic I've discussed a lot in the past, mostly in relation to Fire Walk With Me, because... As I was getting back into David Lynch and Twin Peaks work in 2014, I was uh, focusing a lot on Fire Walk with me and how it deals with trauma and the depiction of like um, 
violence and abuse in Lynch's work. And I found it interesting to look back at Eraserhead and say, well, when you think about it, that film climaxes much the same way as uh, as well, Firewalk With Me and Eraserhead climax in similar ways with like a parent killing their child and there being some sort of spiritual deliverance transcendence. Now in Eraserhead, you know, and Firewalk With Me, different points of view, different depictions. It's all, it's almost like weird mirror images. So I actually wove the two together in a video I made once. What fascinated me this time watching it again was thinking about it in relation to other parts of Twin Peaks, particularly Henry in relation to different aspects of Cooper. That is an element that I haven't explored as much before and that I'm intrigued to dig into now. I think particularly the Dougie character in season three. I mean, that... Um, just over and over, just even shots of him sort of stumbling into the elevator, standing, looking ahead, kind of helplessly. I was going to say blankly, but I don't... Henry isn't really a blank like Dougie. That's an interesting difference between them. It even makes us wonder how much of a blank Dougie really is. Maybe there's more going on beneath the surface. They have a similar sort of expression, a similar sort of, at, at times... Uh, way of, of of moving through the world and uh, that was very striking to me even just on the physical level but you know the shot of the elevator taking him up and in these similarities as is often the case when making Twin Peaks or any other comparisons the the contrasts emerge more starkly as well because you have an element of of similarity and then that only makes the parts that are different so like you look at uh, Dougie in the Lucky 7 elevator, surrounded by all these people, shoving him out in this nice, sleek, shiny office building, bright colors on his shirt, and then you have this black and white image of Henry in the dingy apartment building with the elevator slowly closing and taking him up all alone by himself. And that, in some ways, I, I suppose there are internal and external differences between Dougie and uh, and by of course by Dougie I mean the Cooper as taking Dougie's place in Vegas. Although there are some interesting uh, comparisons between the uh, Dougie Tulpa, the one that that Cooper replaces, who who goes off to the Red Room, and, and Henry, which we'll dig into a little bit later in the podcast. So w- there's like an internal difference between Coopy du- Cooper <laughs> Cooper Dougie and Henry Cooper slash Dougie and Henry. And there are external differences as well. So as I said, with the internal, you know, it does seem like we're given more reason to sort of know and understand that there's something going on inside of Henry, even if he has trouble expressing it. The motor of the movie. and so, Well, not exactly the motor, because things happen to him, but the, the like, receptor of the movie in a way that... The, the, the thing that allows things to happen to them and, and mean something in the context of the film. Whereas with uh, the Dougie Cooper character, you know, and Martha Nockhamson is is more insistent upon this. She's a, a great Lynch scholar. You've probably heard me talk to in the past. She's more insistent on this than I am. Very adamant that uh, she does not believe there's really anything there with, with the Dougie Cooper. He's just sort of a comical figure that we can chuckle along with. I, I don't quite... I, I have never quite wrapped my head around exactly what's going on with that Dougie. Like, is there that that version of, or that version of Cooper, really, the Dougie version of Cooper? It's more compelling to me if there is something that's being repressed and held back, but is lapping on the shores of his consciousness, so to speak, than if it's just a, isn't this funny, this guy, there's nothing there, it's just a vessel moving through the world. Um, 
I, I don't know. I, I've, I, I'd like to think there's something more, but you know, we, we're really not given access to it. it. It's an, it's a very odd character viewer relationship that is worth digging into just on its own there. So there's that internal difference. I mean, we're, we're given privy to Henry's sort of visions, his, his, I think his reaction shots are the primary way that we are given some sense of his, his in, internal state. And with Dougie, it's the exact opposite. For the most part, there are exceptions, like when he's crying, when he watches Sonny Jim, some of his expressions as he stares at the statue, where he reacts in a kind of a blank way, just staring straight ahead and repeating the words people say. And I think that's why people like Nockhamson's just say, no, nothing there, nothing there, nothing to see. But there are those moments, and there's many of them, and these are the moments that people kept saying, oh, Cooper's coming back, this is him coming back, where he does seem to take pleasure in the world. It's just that he can't express that in some way. And that, that does that certainly does connect him to Henry. But then uh, the external aspect of it, Dougie is like always surrounded by people. This has got Janie E buzzing around him. He's got all the people at the office. He's got the Mitchums. He's really seldom, if ever, alone. You know, even when he's standing there in the in the plaza at night looking at the statue, there's like a security guard who comes along and tries to help him. Jade, the first, the very first moment that he's out in the world lying on the floor unable to move she comes in and kind of hustles him along so he's constantly being uh moved around by people with henry there he has a lot of alone time in the film especially at first first he's very alone from the point that he goes to mary x's house then from that point on in the movie there's always someone or something in the case of the baby that is uh, with him. He's seldom alone. Even in his dreams, when he goes off in his dreams, he's uh, having the affair with the woman across the hall. He is um, with the lady in the radiator, which is, you know, that's that's a little bit of a different relationship there that we can talk about. But so he, he is surrounded, quote unquote, but it's it's just a far less busy, overwhelming environment. Uh, it's it's colder, it's lonelier, and and also I think once the wife leaves, uh, other than in the dream where she's still in bed with him, but you know for the most part, he is it's it's him and the baby, and the baby is just this foreign force that he can't communicate with. Uh, I mean, okay, you know, here we go. This is a thought that didn't even occur to me now until this very moment as we're recording. This is why I love moving through this stuff in a stream of consciousness way. The baby is also a little like Dougie when you think about it. The baby actually can't communicate. We have no access to its interiority. There seems to be something going on there, but it's just this being that's kind of sliced off from uh, from Henry or, or or anyone else. And there's also a sense in which the baby is an expression of Henry and he identifies with it. The scene behind the radiator where he his head pops off and the eraser head baby pops up in its place. The woman across the hall seeing him and he's staring at her, unable to express himself in a weird way as she's with this weird sketchy guy and uh, and taking him into her, her, her room and he's staring kind of jealously and she looks back at him and we cut to him and we see the eraser head baby again 
you know, the baby. I said this <laughs> this is a movie eraser head. I don't need to say that every time, I guess. But the baby, we see the head uh you know, mounted on his shoulders again, like it's like he is the eraser head baby. And uh it's this interesting idea that when he's killing the baby, he's killing something in himself. And what what is that thing? Is it a block to creativity? I think if I remember correctly, that's sort of how Martha Nockhamson looks at it. Uh, I think you could also see it as killing the social part of himself, the part that attempts to go out in the world and communicate and and just can't, uh, is kind of helpless. Killing the help, you know, the irony is he's able to kill the baby because it's helpless, and in doing so, in some sort of metaphorical way, he's killing the helpless part of himself. Lynch has called this his most spiritual film and said that there's a biblical passage he he landed on one time, just like randomly opening the Bible, and he was like, that's it, that's Eraserhead. And then he, uh, uh, I, you know, the obvious, <laughs> he's never said what that passage was. I suppose the obvious thing to think would it be, it would be something with Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Uh, but I doubt that. I think it was probably something much more oblique than that. That's an interesting thought that I hadn't really considered before, is like this extent to which the eraser head is also similar to Dougie, and in a way, the eraser, uh, the eraser head baby, sorry, now I'm just calling it eraser head, uh, the baby and uh, Henry are almost like two different ways of looking at uh, uh, Dougie's situation in, in Twin Peaks. So that's a lot of thought about uh, Dougie. I'd love to hear more of what people think about that. But there's other aspects to the film as well that uh, call to mind Twin Peaks. Uh, primarily, there's the little room behind the radiator, the small room that Henry stares at. And uh, we see the lady in the radiator there. This is an idea that Lynch came up with during the production of Eraserhead. It wasn't part of the original script, even though it's ultimately completely integral to the arc of the movie to have this kind of redemption space in a way this deliverance this transcendence that's the right word because it is totally a transcendental meditation thing uh, lynch came up with the idea when he started doing transcendental meditation which was during the production and it's so clear that this is what the woman is offering him when she kind of opens her hands and the music on the soundtrack and the light comes in and floods everything and then she goes away. So, so much about this space, both the idea of what it's conveying, but also just its physicality is reminiscent, but not really because it came first, you know, predictive, I suppose, of the Red Room. I mean, even just to the point of having this tiled floor, this red and white or black and white, rather. I mean, it's in black and white, so we don't know. Maybe it's purple or something, but, it, you know, it looks like a monochrome black and white tiled floor. And then, of course, the zigzag chevron floor of, of the Red Room. But then also, even in season three, some of the things he brings in there. Cooper falling through the floor. You have uh, Henry's head falling through the floor here. You have a tree, roll, a little branchy tree rolled in on a mound of dirt in this, in Eraser Head, and then you have the the uh, evolution of the arm, the little tree branch with what looks like an, uh, an Eraser Head baby head on top of it in, in the return, speaking to Cooper there. And the lady in the radiator uh, guiding him through, like some version of Mike or, uh, or the little man in the original series. Just the entire way that the characters interact there, and also something that they bring in, uh, 
in, it, it's a little bit in the season two finale, but I think it's more of a, you know, characters fading, like Annie fades away. There's sharp cuts where it's like one second it's Caroline, then it's Annie, then it's Laura, and then it's Wyndham and so forth. But this actual, like, characters whoosh, disappearing and just leaving the empty space behind them, like just cutting straight out of the frame, that happens in... Uh, in Blue Velvet, when Frank says, let's let's go, whatever, and he's spreading his arms, and then it goes, the, the sound, and all the characters disappear from the frame, but you still have the background there. And you have that in Eraserhead several times. And that's something you see more in season three. Even there, it's a little different, because usually they're like, there's like a crinkle where like it's part of them gets erased, and part of them's there, and then they're just gone. He does that a lot throughout uh, I think there still may be some shots though where characters just pop up in and out up but but that idea of characters like quickly snap you know coming and going in the red room like that uh, in the season two finale and in season three you see in this with the lady in the radiator just vanishing from the frame leaving the background and and even Henry does this at a time like he sort of disappears into non-existence if you will and then and then comes back. Uh, also, there was something, I'm trying to remember now what exactly, oh yes, okay, so when Henry gets behind the little counter and his head pops off and the eraser head baby grows, very reminiscent of the original Dougie being zapped into the red room and saying, what is this, this is weird, and his hand disappears and then his head kind of explodes or disappears and there's the black smoke, similar to Diane, so Lynch working with that kind of idea of the red room in season three, the Tulpa Dougie that's... Uh, with Jade and gets pulled into the Red Room. He, in some ways, is actually more similar to Henry than any other version of Cooper. That same sort of like, okay, he's there, but he's a bit lackadaisical in his response, and the this is weird, who are you? That kind of uh, reaction really reminds me of Henry, just kind of bumbling, floating through life. Now, that Dougie is never looked on with much sympathy by any commentator on this series, whereas Henry, I think, as the protagonist, does garner a little more uh, maybe sympathy or at least understanding. So it seems like an odd comparison to make, but when you think about it, like their their affect, their affect is, is kind of similar. And also, of course, they both have uh, ridiculous hair. So I want to move through some of the other aspects of this that... Uh, that jumped out at me, just little connections here and there, little threads to pull on. And then I want to end with some larger thoughts about the significance of the Red Room radiator space and the character's journey through this and all of that. One thing that struck me right away at the beginning of the film was when Henry opens his mouth and the weird little spermy root thing comes out and floats off when he's we have the shot of his head kind of floating through space. And... It's interesting to me that for some reason, as I was anticipating that, in my memory, it goes into his mouth. It's like infecting him, but it's not. It comes out of him, which is both more compelling in a way, but also creates a contrast to maybe what I had in my mind, which is the bug crawling into the girl's mouth in Twin Peaks. So, and there's an interesting male-female dichotomy with that, of course, you know, with uh, Lynch is always working with archetypes and the idea of the man as being the kind of the active presence that uh, it infects the girl, in this case, being like the recipient of it. Certainly we see that with like Laura, where she is like fighting off the imposition of Bob. Um, although, you know, at the same time, Bob also possesses Leland and has some sort of uh, relation with the evil Cooper. So 
it's it's not strictly gender, but there is often that aspect to it. Um, but something else that struck me about that was, okay, well, this is it, the the significance of this being the sort of starting point of the movie is something is being separated and pulled out from Henry, or he is producing something. You know, the film is sort of obsessed with the mechanics of reproduction in this kind of industrialized way that I've contrasted in the past with. Uh, his short film, The Grandmother, which has a different conception of that. There's a lot of like winding gears and this where it's like cranking the lever, this this guy, the man in the planet, they call him, uh, sitting there. And I think it might be, he might be played by Jack Fisk. I can't remember. But his space, particularly the noises of the, the gears grinding and everything, reminds me of the fireman space where they are uh, producing this weird tuba or whatever, this this horn that shoots the Lara ball out into the world and all of that. In some ways, The Return feels like Lynch's most Eraserhead-esque work since Eraserhead. Just in... It's, it's hard to put my finger on it exactly, but like it's it's kind of aesthetic in a way. It's a little more... Even though it's so much more eclectic and bursting at the seams with ideas and imagery, moment to moment, there's a kind of like elemental quality to it which feels more like that early Lynch moving painting style. I, I wish I could articulate it better than that, What I, exactly what I'm thinking of and referring to. I don't know, maybe iconographic's the right word. Just, for example, again, that, that use of machinery, that kind of industrial sense of how things are produced and this fascination with just honing in on and, and watching that mechanism at work. Just something, something about that quality. Uh, brings brings that to mind, and I suppose at this point too, be worth mentioning since we've talked about other versions of Cooper, um, the Mister, you know, the Cooper in the Red Room, the Cooper Dougie Tulpa, Cooper as Dougie, but also the Mister C figure. I think some of his way of moving, his circumspection, his silence, his steadiness of moving through spaces without being particularly sociable or interacting with people. There's a little of Henry there. I I, I don't see as much of a connection there. Uh, it it may just come down to more how Lynch guides figures who aren't big talkers through space. So that, that may not have, there may not be as fundamental a connection there. But I thought that was worth mentioning. The gold pool in the woods, the little pond thing in the middle of where they find NATO that corresponds to the Glastonbury Grove pool with the oil in it, but specifically that shiny gold one. That that the look of these ponds that like the little sperm thing falls into on the planet reminded me of that. And then after that moment, there's this sort of explosion of dust. You see it later when the guy in the eraser factory blows the dust off his hands, floating through space, obviously calling to mind that imagery in uh, the atomic explosion sequence in part eight. I suppose to, again, talking about figures who stumble through spaces without uh, talking very much, the woodsman as well, that, that calls that to mind. Again, just the way Lynch handles like that monster movie quality. I, when I saw Eraserhead, I commented that he seemed like a combination, you know, he's got the Bride of Frankenstein's hairdo, but he moves kind of like Frankenstein's monster uh, through through the environment. So that's just something about the way Lynch kind of guides these characters along, and the fact that it's black and white and these old sets that he builds for, like, the radio station and stuff in Part 8, that, that again, that's another part that I wasn't even thinking of when I said Season 3 is, like, his most Eraserhead work since Eraserhead. Uh, that, that Part 8 has many, many elements of that in there. It's funny, too, that speaking of how the, you know, these characters are moving through environments without speaking, it's 11 minutes before we get any dialogue uh, whatsoever 
in in this film. It goes so far along. I'm fascinated by the sense of which, like, I, I remember scenes in this, sequences in this film very well, and I've seen it a number of times, but you really do fall under its spell and crawl inside of it while you're, while you're in the movie itself. The fact that so much time goes by where you're in almost like a trance-like state watching as these images are cascading across, and then it kind of slips into more of like a comical plot mode. So even in this film, which is more elemental, more experimental in a lot of ways than later Lynch films will be, where he does a sort of surrealist Hollywood thing, uh, in this film it's just more brazenly avant-garde, but even in this film you get that sense of Lynch working in different modes, working in sort of a, like parody of domestic life, but then also just going off on long tangents of this dream imagery and letting that guide him along. You know, there's that whole middle section of the movie, middle to end section, where uh, after Mary, after the baby gets sick, and he's like staring at the brick wall out the window, and from that point until pretty much the point where he is about to kill the baby, when he sees uh, the neighbor and the, the um, you know, she's staring at him and all that. It, it bracketed in between those. It's like a long, long stretch of just very a very dreamlike flow of images. I think a lot of it is actually a dream to the extent that all of Eraserhead isn't just a dream. And uh, dreams inside of dreams even and, and kind of disappearing down that rabbit hole. So Lynch can do that there. He can have sequences that play with a more sort of airtight uh, Lynchian logic to them. I can't just say logic <laughs> to describe them, but you know, they have a certain rhythm and certain rules to how, how they unfold, like these these strange exchanges with the father and the chicken and all of that at the table. Uh, so just the fact that it can encompass all that, even within this much more spare, pared down format is kind of like a proto Twin Peaks quality, I think. Uh, that, that, and, well, that I'll save that thought till the end. I was going to get into as well the this, this spiritual aspect and how that kind of creates a dichotomy within the film. But uh, the girl getting sick at the intersection in part 11 uh, really also calls to mind Eraserhead, both the baby getting sick and uh, just in, in general, like Henry's nosebleed, the family, Mary X and her mother having those seizures and making those noises, uh, all of that just feels evoked when this this girl is sitting up in the in the car, the mother's screaming, Bobby's staring at them like, what the hell is going on? And she's got her arms outstretched. So Lynch, through his entire career, working with these kind of motifs of, of human behavior. Also, the, uh, the mother lifting, I suppose it's the grandmother's arms in the kitchen to get her to toss the salad and then just placing the cigarette uh, in, in her lips. That felt very Dougie to me, like those moments where Janie E. opens the car and has to pull Dougie out of the car and dress him and all of those things. The father, the Mary X's father, speaks about his his left arm going numb because of all the work he did. I mean, obviously that, that calls certain things to mind there. The bleeding man and the cell making noises, that's another. I'm just sort of looking through these notes I took at, at different parts of the movie that just jumped out to me. Um, the bleeding man and the cell making noises, very reminiscent of the Eraserhead baby. <sighs> there again, I just it's like I can't just call it the baby, even when I'm already, just, like you all know what baby I'm referring to, something about it. It's like the Eraserhead baby. It's like Frankenstein's monster. That that baby is like is making the noises throughout the night and they can't sleep. Very reminiscent of Chad turning and tossing in the cell as the 
as the bleeding man is just repeating things that everyone is saying around him. I was struck while watching the film thinking about that famous Lynch quote of how he got into making movies because he wanted to see his paintings move. And I think we always look at that in one direction of like adding something to the paintings. But it's also in a way, I don't know if taking away is the right word, but it's also doing something to the movie end of it because his movies, the way he lingers, it's not it's not exactly like your normal cinematic lingering. Like a lot of times when someone holds a shot, it's about the passage of time in like, it's like a very like almost documentary sense. Like you're watching, you're, you're taking, you're soaking in the space as you would. It's allowing you to kind of observe your environment in a way you might in real life. With Lynch, it feels more like when he lingers on a shot and he has a character kind of hold an expression or a pose, it's more like you're staring at a painting. You're staring at something that isn't moving, but you you know the the fact that that it is someone who is existing in time and movement and stuff adds another layer of surrealism to it but just as he wanted to transform his paintings into movies it sometimes feels like he wants to transform the movies into paintings that he wants to take these cinematic elements and bring them as close as he can to something that is being held and sustained as a still image so that's something that struck me. I think particularly watching the neighbor, the female neighbor's reaction to like the baby, just the way it would go on and on. And it wasn't like something was evolving or changing. It was like you were getting to contemplate something that was fixed in a way. A few other details that jumped out at me. Cooper Dougie sticking the fork into the outlet reminded me very much of Henry uh, stabbing the baby, just the build up to it the slow, methodical approach, like, uh-oh, we know what's going to happen. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't do it. Oh, God, what's going to happen? And then the explosion of electricity and the transformation, the, the deliverance, in a way, of the of the figure. Very reminiscent staging there. Also, the head falling through the, like, a, a portal just falling into the frame where it drops into that alleyway and the kid picks it up. Talking about Henry's head after the radiator room sequence. Very much recalls Cooper falling from space, particularly into the purple world when he just whisks from the top of the frame into that balcony area. It's a very similar staging there. And uh, just him, dis again, it's like the head disappearing through the floor like like uh, Dougie does. There's so many like transitional, or like Cooper does. He's not Dougie yet at that point. There's so many transitional elements to season three and ways of like handling movement and space and transitions between them that feels like him returning to the eraser head mode in a way that I feel like we don't see quite as much in some of the in-between works. And there's just something about his style, too, with like how Inland Empire, even though Mary Sweeney didn't edit it, is still kind of in that phase of his career where where it's more like lyrical and impressionistic and that type of thing. Like, you don't get that so much with the Racerhead, and you don't get that so much with the Return, either. Also, the kid who comes in to uh, grab the head and take it to the factory reminded me of the kid reaching under the uh, car to get the bomb in uh, in in part six, I think it is, of The Return. And the guy at the factory who brings it there, who comes in and yells at his underling, reminded me a lot of uh, Agent Headley, Wilson, Headley and Wilson, I think are their names, in uh, in The Return, the FBI agents in Vegas, who one of whom is always yelling and berating the other one. And the ending of the film, this will serve as our transition to discussing the spiritual aspect of, of 
Eraserhead in particular in both works, but the ending of the film and the ending of the return also kind of mirror each other. This explosion of energy with the lamp blowing out, the light blowing out, and then that is what takes the character into this space where he's with a woman in close intimacy with her, hugging her in the case of uh, Eraserhead and being having her whisper in his ear in the case of The Return. And one seems much more, I don't know if happy is exactly the right word, but you know there there is a comfort and a soothing and a like, we've done it sense to Eraserhead. And I don't get that sense with uh, The Return, that dark music playing as Lara whispers and he has this distressed expression on his face in very, very slow motion. Like you might even think it's a still image, but you know, it's, it's slowly moving his, his expression as she whispers to him. And that's like the closing image of the return. It's even a dark image. Like it's hard to see actually, unless your TV is calibrated exactly right. So, you know, there's, there, they, they kind of diverge from each other there, but also there are theories that, no, actually what happens in The Return is Cooper is using Lara to kind of release some energy through her trauma that will then slay Judy and destroy this alternate universe and restore the order to the way things should be and deliver everyone to, you know, and, and presumably Cooper and Lara maybe to their uh, to the Red Room where they perhaps belong or something like that. You know, there's different theories about this. Uh, you probably read it. I'll link it below. They call it like the cage bomb theory or something like that. Um, I don't really see the end of the return that way, but uh, thinking about a racer head in the way that Martha Nockhamson and others describe it, it did actually make me start to kind of uh, uh, wonder if, okay, maybe there's something to that because there's a reading of a racer head that Henry is when he's killing the baby, he's like releasing some sort of pent up energy in himself or, or kind of, it's almost like popping a boil. Gruesome imagery, but that's what it looks like, certainly. But certainly this idea that this act of destruction is an act of creation and an act of release. And it's ugly and violent and painful, but it is setting things back to right. And if you see Cooper is doing that at the end of part 18 with Laura, there's that that's interesting also in the sense that Laura Laura Palmer being such a rich character uh, corresponds to so many different uh, figures in Eraserhead you know there's certainly the comparison I drew with her to the baby that's being slain um, but also you can see her as the lady in the radiator who is the you know to a certain degree as far as Cooper is concerned she's this ethereal figure guiding him through a mystery and welcoming him you know at the end of the at the end of firewalk with me we have that scene of them together in the red room that seems very peaceful and comforting and and uh of course in in that scene he's almost more like the lady in the radiator and and also you know Laura does i think even correspond to uh, Henry in some ways where both films Eraserhead and firewalk with me are stories of somebody trying to kind of get out of a situation being trapped and uh, find out uh, a secret in a way in Henry's case it's like what's what is wrapped up and you know what what is what is within the baby's swaddling and so he's cutting it open to find the secret and in Laura's case the secret is you know who is Bob who is abusing her and when I cut those sequences together in 
my uh, video, which I'm going to talk about more in the archive, but that what compelled me about that connection is it works. It's like you can almost flip a switch and kind of toggle between two interpretations of it. One in which the parallel is Bob assaulting Laura and Henry cutting open the baby, but you can also look at it as switching the roles and having, okay, Laura is asking Bob, who are you? As Henry is asking the baby, what are you? And so in that, you can toggle between who you're identifying with, even as they cut together really well in a way that makes them feel like at times they are sharing a space, like when Henry looks up and I cut to Laura's window or when, uh, you know, but then at other times it's more like it's, they're echoing one another. I, I don't know. I just, that kind of interweaving that is so particularly possible with Lynch's work, I think is is very fascinating and something I'd probably like to do more of at some point and would like to see others do something with too. Like not just a montage idea of here's a clip from this, here's a clip from that, but like an idea of these are all sort of sharing some space, some Lynch verse, if you will. So as I said, I, I want to talk about what the radiator space means in this film and and how it relates to the idea of not even so much the red room in Twin Peaks as like a space, but this concept of finding your more unified self in a sense, finding your deeper self. And there's something really powerful about the particular sequence where Henry himself goes to the radiator space in, I believe it's in a dream and lady in the radiator is showing him something and his reactions open up the movie in a way that it hasn't been up to this point. And it's, it is fascinating to think of how, just as with Twin Peaks, Lynch came up with the idea of the Red Room after he'd shot the pilot and inserted it into the ending, made it a dream sequence, and he came up with the lady with the radiator the same way in Eraserhead. And in both cases, you have these spaces that totally open up these worlds and make them deeper and richer. In Eraserhead, those moments where he's staring at the lady in the radiator and he's like feeling something. For so much of the movie, for so much of the first part of the movie, he seems so lost. He's he's wandering through and whatever is there. It seems like there's a numbness inside of him. Like he there's something he he knows and he feels, but he can't. It's not even that he can't articulate it. It's that he can't quite clearly feel it. And she's giving him a gift in this moment, ability to feel something deeply. And what I I love about this sequence is, again, it, it transforms the film where I think for much of the first half, like there's a sense in which Lynch is doing something really well, which a lot of people do. It sounds like an odd thing to say for a film as unique as this, but that kind of pared down, move through space, react turn your head, see this thing. Like there's a kind of, I've, I've heard people describe this as like his student film. People often don't like it quite as much. It's just like, oh, you know, it's, and there's a sense in which that's true in that the character is like somebody, like I think a lot of film students kind of working their way through how do you handle the camera? How do you do this? Like they have characters move through space and it's like, there's something a little bit mechanical about it. This is an interesting image to me. I'm not so interested in what's going on inside the character as I am in the character moving as a physical object through through this space, let's say. And so I think you get that a lot throughout the first part of Eraserhead. It's like the most meticulously, beautifully executed, imaginatively flourished version of that. But... Uh, it, it, it works as a sort of an ar archetypal like iconography. You don't need to have 
a lot of depth there to Henry or other. But when he goes to this radiator space, suddenly there is this like marvelous sense of 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 depth of feeling to him. Well, this is dancing about architecture, of course. Um, we're talking about something that can't really be expressed with language, and that's why Lynch doesn't express it with language. Language can maybe evoke it, but uh, we'll end on that note, I think. The ineffable part of Eraserhead that we can't quite reach in words. But I just love that Lynch opens the film up to that and takes it to that next level, which is where so many of his later works uh, will inhabit that transcendence. And here is the segment that I recorded for patrons comparing the storyline of who is Donna's father to the film Eraserhead. This was part of a series in Twin Peaks Reflections where I would cover different uh, either Lynch works or episodes of The Return or occasionally like books, spin-off books of Twin Peaks and compare them to a storyline from the original season or original series rather, seasons one and two and uh, or Firewalk with me and uh, talk about that uh, that that storyline in comparison to that. So in this case, it was Eraserhead and this uh, very soapy storyline. The episode that this connects with is episode 28, the Miss Twin Peaks episode of season two. As for the storyline, who is Donna's father? This is the episode where we get the answer to that. We actually never strictly get the answer uh, to that question. Obviously, we think it's Doc Hayward for like 24, 25 episodes. But at a certain point, Ben Horn comes into the house. Donna's sneaking up on the stairwell and looking at him there and seeing, oh, like, he's talking to my mom. What's going on? And then we get a hint that Ben wants to share a secret from the past and uh, that Donna is uh, probably, probably, it has something to do with Donna's birth. So she asks him at one point, are you my father backstage at Miss Twin Peaks? And he's like, Donna, I, and your mother, and she's like, oh my god, and she runs away. So maybe they would have found something else interesting to do with it if they'd done a third season back in season three, but they didn't, and in the final dossier, you know, after the finale where there's the confrontation of Doc Hayward pushing Ben into the fireplace, and Donna's got a suitcase, and she wants to leave, and she's all distraught, we learn that, like, the family just split apart, and Doc Hayward left, which seems so out of character, even if there was this trauma but uh, you know that that's all we've got to go on just the final dossier material that her and donna and her dad do reconcile ultimately but uh you know in in vermont where he does the skype call in uh, twin peaks she might be just off screen there so again this is in this ep- uh, this i'm discussing this in relation to miss twin peaks because um that's where it's sort of climax if not conclusion is because it's where she asks him about it my quick summary description beyond what i just gave would be uh, with her drama prone boyfriend out of town donna's new preoccupation becomes digging into the odd connection between ben and her mother leading her to discover that he is almost certainly her birth father now it's interesting how i wrote that it's sort of focused more on donna um, but really ben drives the plot in a lot of ways he's the one who comes to the house He's the one who's talking that uh, Donna overhears and he keeps sort of pushing the steps. And then at a certain point, she's taking more action. She's looking up her birth certificate in the attic and all of that. So uh, it's sort of these two characters who need something to do now that Ben is awakened from his Civil War dream. He, He does have the Ghostwood stuff, but that's in a way more for Audrey to handle. So it gives him something to do and it definitely gives Donna something to do after the James has disappeared, which... everything for her in the show up to this point has revolved around James and or Laura 
so finding something else for her is is a challenge there. The characters involved in this story, besides Donna, Ben, and obviously both Eileen and Doc, are um, not many other people. That's pretty much it, actually. It's one of the more contained storylines. We uh, Audrey does become involved briefly as she helps out Donna um, spying, showing her the spying place behind the wall at the Great Northern so they can listen to uh, Ben and Eileen talk. And Sylvia pops in eventually in the finale to scold uh, Ben, I think mostly just so Lynch can have an excuse to bring one more character from the early episodes back. But this is really a pretty tight and limited story. It lasts for six episodes, 24 through 29. And I think there's a scene of it in each of those episodes. It's sort of a touchstone going forward. And I view it as one of the moments where the the show shifts a little bit back into mystery mode. It's not a big mystery. Like we know within a scene or two where this is probably going. But uh, like with the mystery box and other things that are brought in at that point, it's something that's open-ended versus like the mid-season stuff where it's just like, okay, I mean, I guess is Little Nicky the Devil is kind of a mystery and maybe the Evelyn Marsh stuff, but there's more of like a open-ended where will this go? Like, even if we know, okay, he's probably your dad, like what could happen after that? It, it has some sort of stakes and it involves characters we're attached to, even if it's taking them in places that seem uh, off from where we originally met them. And uh, finally, it, to, to draw a connection to, uh, you know, I always draw a connection to another Lynch film, a Twin Peaks spinoff or a part of season three, and I thought it would be kind of funny to look at the Eraserhead connection here. I would doubt Lynch had much to do with this storyline, but he does have a interest in sort of parenthood and fatherhood in particular uh, throughout his films. Uh, I think, I mean, obviously within Twin Peaks itself, we have the, the sort of dark relationship between uh, Laura and uh, Leland, which was already refracted or reflected or however you want to put it in the Audrey-Ben relationship. So now it's like they're sort of taking Ben, detaching him from that, now that him and Audrey have somewhat reconciled and putting him in in that relation with Donna. Now in Eraserhead, obviously, it's a whole tale of of uh, fatherhood, of a father who doesn't want his responsibilities and is now saddled with this strange, deformed baby that he can't have any connection to and it's tying him down and pulling him away. It's funny that, in a way, the Ben and Donna storyline is the reverse of that, where Ben is trying to insert himself into... I mean, it's not exactly clear that he wants to, like, take over from... I mean, I don't think he does want to take over from Doc Hayward, but he wants to take ownership of the fact that he might be uh, Donna's dad. And uh, like Eraserhead, this storyline ends in a bloody fashion, As, uh, but in this case with the father ostensibly the father being the one who's who's injured uh who is you know or you know you could think he was killed the the final dossier well and season three of course say that he survived but uh you know end of a racer head that i think that fair to say that the baby has been destroyed um whatever it actually means or is there and there's also a metaphorical element to that where it's like the secret is out that's somehow what uh what Henry is doing in that moment, unwrapping the bandages is like exposing the hidden mystery or secret. I think Martha Nockhamson has talked about it that way as a sort of poetic metaphor. And that also is what's coming out uh, literally as well as physically in that, in that final episode of the uh, Donna storyline. So, you know, these two questions of like, who's your dad and uh, how is your dad sort of threatening the, um, the the family dynamic in whatever way we have a racer head and and this storyline 
And then in a way, it's like the the sort of peak of that is Firewalk Me, where it's like deadly serious. It's not abstracted as an eraser head. It's not turned into sort of a soap opera uh, who's related to who thing as in um, as in Twin Peaks, the show. It just becomes this this dark storyline with a deep traumatic core. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies, where, by the way, I didn't mention this, but I also have advanced entries of the character series going up. So right now it's up to number 74 on the site, and if you become a patron, you can go all the way up to 47. So check that out, too. The previous episode covered Mulholland Drive to kick this off, and the next one is going to cover one more Lynch film to round off the Lynchverse series, and uh, we're going to play a taste of it here. I'm sure you'll, if you're familiar with Lynch's work, you'll probably know what this is just from the sound of it. And uh, it's actually going to tie into another podcast on my Lost in the Movies feed, where I cover uh, the documentary uh, about the making of this film. So you can check out both of those in the coming month. And I should say before we get to that uh, little teaser. If you want to hear more Razorhead, I actually have a whole other episode also on the Lost in the Movies feed, which is a comparison between Eraserhead and Inland Empire. So another Lynch connection there with this as first film. So check all that out. Links are in the show notes. And here's what we're going with in March. Into the magic It's dark.